Welcome to the Augustine Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. This is a podcast about the work being done on the life and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. Each episode features an interview with a different guest, usually on to talk about their own work that considers Augustine and or his writings. I hope you enjoy the show. A quick note before we get started, for this interview I was recovering from a cold, so I do apologize if I sound a bit rough or just tired. That said, let's get into the show. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Lamb. Dr. Lamb is the FM Kirby Foundation Chair of Leadership and Character, the Executive Director for the Program of Leadership and Character, and Associate Professor of Interdisciplinary Humanities at Wake Forest University. He's also a research fellow with the Oxford Character Project. He holds a PhD in politics from Princeton University, a BA in political science from Rhodes College, and a second BA in philosophy and theology from the University of Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Michael's interests focus on the ethics of citizenship and the role of virtues in public life. He's a co-editor of Cultivating Virtue in the University, also co-editor of Everyday Ethics, Moral Theology, and the Practices of Ordinary Life. His work has been published in a number of edited volumes in academic journals, including the American Political Science Review, Review of Politics, Journal of Religious Ethics, Journal of Moral Education, and Journal of Character Education. Today I have the honor of speaking with him about his brand new book, A Commonwealth of Hope, which offers a novel interpretation of Augustine's political thought and recovers his virtue of hope to inform contemporary politics. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, let's just get right in, Michael. I know you are working at Wake Forest, but tell me a little bit more about yourself. So where are you from originally? Because you're not from Winston-Salem. Yeah, I grew up on a small farm in Tennessee. So I I was from sort of middle Tennessee, about an hour south of Nashville in a town called Chapel Hill, and went to college in Memphis, uh, where I studied political science there. So I stayed in Tennessee my first 22 years uh, before heading off to graduate school at that point. Okay. And what have you done since then? Where did you go to graduate school? Where did you do your PhD? And what was that like? Who were you working on? Um, And while you're at it, what sort of got you into Augustine and has has kept you in this circle? Sure, yeah. Well, I first got Augustine in, in college, uh, where I read portions of City of God for a course called Search for Values, my first year of college, and was really struck by that point about Augustine's account of two cities, um, but wasn't necessarily convinced uh, of his view at that time. I read Augustine then uh, as a pessimist about the world who really um, it was very focused on the world's evils and and the extent of sin. So at that point, I was really more interested in, in thinkers who really emphasized the possibility of virtue and the world's goodness alongside its its evils. Um, but when I went to graduate school, I read more in theology. I did a graduate degree at Oxford uh, in philosophy and theology, a second BA there. And I studied Augustine and other thinkers there and really began to see a, a more nuanced picture of Augustine's thought. Um, but especially that became evident when I went to grad school at Princeton, where I took courses on Augustine with Eric Gregory there and worked with um, people in both political theory and in the Department of Religion. And began to see an Augustine that was much more complex and I think a bit more hopeful. Uh, so I began to read texts just beyond the city of God and beyond Book 19, which has been a favorite text of many political theorists. I began to read more 
scholarship in theology and religious studies, which emphasized new ideas and new ways of formulating concepts like the order of love, which um, many people in political theory thought to be more pessimistic and more world-denying. And I began to see the ways in which Augustine's own context shaped his thought. And when I put Augustine in his own context, and I also realized the ways in which the context of later interpreters uh, had shaped their own accounts of Augustine, I began to see a much more nuanced um, account of this thought, and my hope is really to begin to lift up that more nuanced account um, for political theorists and think about the ways in which Augustine might be relevant for both political theory and practice. Good. I was going to ask, how do you come to Augustine? How do you define your work? You mentioned that you come through political theory, not primarily through ethics. Where do you sort of locate yourself in the giant world of Augustine scholarship? Yes, you know, I was trained as a political theorist primarily, but I also did a program uh, in graduate school at Princeton that really uh, was across disciplines. So working in religion as well in the philosophy department and even had courses in the, the seminary uh, there as well. So I was really working across political theory, ethics and um, theology and religious studies in my graduate work. And so now I'm part of a program for interdisciplinary humanities at Wake Forest and also lead the program for leadership and character here. So I'm really thinking about the ways that different disciplines can help us understand Augustine. And I think one thing about Augustine's thought is he lived before a time of academic specialization. And so he wasn't thinking about the difference between theology or political theory or ethics in the way we might today, given our uh, academic discourse. And so I'm really trying to think about the ways in which in his own time, he was bringing insights to bear from these different perspectives to illuminate how we ought to live, uh, both as individuals and as communities. And so for me, it's that interdisciplinary approach I think that's very valuable, uh, especially since many political theorists tend to focus um, only on research or more political aspects of Augustine's thought. And I think we can't really understand his political thought without understanding how he thinks about ethics, theology, uh, and other disciplines. So for me, I'm really trying to bring those insights to bear together and integrate their power to sort of offer a new interpretation that can help us really understand Augustine's context uh, more accurately, but also think about the ways in which different fields might illuminate new ideas for us that might help us uh, in our own political communities. Right. Yeah, that really comes through in the book, sort of reading between the City of God sermons, letters, and trying to draw the, the theological writings and put them in conversation with these political theorists, sort of favorite texts of maybe book 19 or book five of City of God. I think you're absolutely right. I think Augustine's sermons and letters, as well as his more theological treatises, really open up new concepts and help us see Augustine applying uh, his more theoretical ideas in very practical circumstances, in ways that really show their complexity. And I think those texts also illuminate concepts such as hope that often aren't included in key passages that the political theorists often read. And so I think if we want to understand Augustine's thought in its sort of context and also more holistically, engaging those texts, I think it's crucial to understanding how he thinks about hope, especially. That's helpful, especially I think later on in the book, you use Augustine's own life as sort of um example to make your point to say yes there's debates over whether he wants to be involved in secular society or thinks there's hope for it or not his life is evident that he does actually get involved in this pagan world and think there are things we can do to improve it but i did find that helpful looking at his letters and sort of the biography stitched together through them to find ways to support your work that's not saying hey we have a new way of reading just this text of the city of god but you can see in augustine's own life that a sort of hyper-pessimistic and passive politics clearly isn't what he's living 
Uh, so it's not likely that's what he's articulating in his own writing. I found that helpful. Well, thanks. Yeah, I really think Augustine's own life is one of our best texts for understanding his thought. And I think especially given the Roman context where many Roman thinkers, including Augustine, really emphasize the value of exemplars as being ways we sort of make ideas concrete and help to persuade um, audiences of their value. And Augustine himself, I think, sees his own life as as an example. Uh, In the Confessions, he talks about the ways in which He's, it can be cheering, he says, uh, for people to hear the ways in which others are transformed uh, from good to evil. And so I think he sees his own life as a kind of discourse. In fact, in the, the text on Christian teaching, he talks about the ways that the most powerful speakers are those who live their own ideas out and in their example persuade most effectively. So I think his own, own life is really worth attending to. And you really get that only um, – in texts like the Confessions and his sermons and letters. And I think the sermons and letters are especially important because the Confessions is written early in Augustine's life, and he has sort of 30 years after that where he's really engaging uh, in Roman political life. And so if you want to understand Augustine's own life, looking at his letters and his sermons help to illuminate a part that can't even be revealed from the Confessions. I agree with you. I find it especially intriguing that in stepping down from teaching rhetoric to move back to Africa, he, he does take this step away from political life. And if you were to end at the confessions, you might say, right, he just pulls out and wants to go be in a monastery. And then the course of his life is being pulled more and more back into that political world and sort of having to live those political theologies and ethics in the public space. Absolutely. I think he's, he's really engaged with a lot of Roman political figures of his time, uh, advocating on behalf of those accused of crimes or trying to intercede in legal cases to help those who might be poor or disadvantaged from being dominated in the courts, uh, for example, or even hearing cases himself. He spent many of his hours each morning um, hearing cases for the bishop's court, uh, which was a recognized court in the Roman Empire that often addressed small claims and conflicts. And Augustine thought that the bishop's court could be more lenient and could help those who might have a more difficult time finding justice uh, in the Roman courts, which required more money uh, and more time. And so I do think that Augustine is very alert to the ways in which politics is happening all around him. And I think it's striking, as Robert Marcus has argued, that Augustine puts his monastery in the city, not in the desert. He really wants his own monks to be engaged in public life and be um, helping those in the community. So I think that's a really striking statement for Augustine. And I think his own life shows him actively involved in serving the broader good, Um, not just in institutions of government, but in in a wider way. And I think his view of politics is much more expansive than we often think about today. Uh, We often think about politics as uh, equated to government or institutions. And he certainly thinks that politics does involve institutions, but he doesn't reduce politics toward just those institutional mechanisms. He sees politics, I think, in a more expansive way in the ways that many of his Roman and Greek um, sort of predecessors thought them to be, much more about pursuing common goods together than simply about uh, having institutions that that constrain evil or sin. Yes, well put. That's, That's exactly right. Let me ask you, how is Augustine normally read in political science um, or political theory? Is he read? Yeah, well, Augustine is read often in political theory. At least he has been in in recent decades. Um, It's striking to see how many political theorists um, that we might know today, John Rawls, for example, Hannah Arendt, Judith Sklar, Martha Nussbaum, and others, 
engage Augustine's thought, uh, even if sometimes critically. Uh, so really engaging his ideas in ways that that show they're they're uh, taking them seriously. Um, but often what happens is those uh, theorists and others who follow them read very select passages of, of City of God, for example, or um, really try to understand Augustine in ways that ignore some of the theological and rhetorical context of his own thought, and as a result, offer, I think, more decontextualized pictures of Augustine's ideas and, and life. Um, and often those interpretations are very influenced by the strand of thinking from the 1950s and 60s from Reinhold Niebuhr and Herbert Dean um, mm -hmm. that really sets Augustine up as a realist or pessimist about politics. And so many political theorists coming after them read Augustine as being primarily focused on evil and sin and offering a very robust account of domination, which he does. And I think that's one helpful part of his thought. He really disrupts and punctures any illusions we have that politics can be purely good or that political leaders are always virtuous. But I think by emphasizing those aspects of his thought, um, John Rawls calls him one of two dark minds in political mm -hmm. theory. Um, political theorists often ignore how he recognizes the good of politics and the ways we can order our loves and our hopes toward certain political goods um, that can help us actually improve our communities and, for Augustine's context, um, live a life of virtue and, and, and commitment. So I do think there are ways Augustine's thought is truncated and, and often reduced when it's focused only on certain key passages or doesn't take into account the ways in which his context, even rhetorically, is shaping how he affects readers. Most political theorists who are trained in a more analytic mode of philosophy tend to read Augustine primarily as a philosopher and see that his statements should be taken as analytical claims or propositions that can be analyzed uh, on their own terms. And he certainly makes those kind of claims, but he also is, as you mentioned before, a rhetorician who also knows the techniques of Roman rhetoric and has really excelled in using those techniques to shape his audiences. And so I think Augustine's also using rhetoric very pedagogically throughout his text, and that statements that might seem to be simply um, claims of truth are also actually trying to shape his audiences in certain ways. And I think often political theorists who don't recognize that philosophy in Augustine's context is really a way of life, not simply a set of abstract ideas or discourses, um, might miss that part of his rhetorical training and how it affects his own thought and expression. Absolutely. Can you say more about that? I've seen a trend lately, whether it's your book or Mary Key's new book, Veronica Roberts Ogle's book, of more and more emphasis on rhetoric and looking at Augustine's rhetoric. Have you noticed a similar trend? And when you go to look at his rhetoric, when you go to understand what's going on behind his words throughout the text as he's weaving rhetorical schemes um what are you reading to understand how augustine writes and what he's trying to do within his own rhetoric absolutely you know augustine himself wrote a great little section on rhetoric and on christian teaching book four of that book really focuses on the ways in which roman rhetoric especially that of cicero um can inform um thinkers in his own tradition as they try to express the truth and encourage people to pursue the city of God. So I think his own thought there is very helpful. And I do think there's a lot of work recently in um, theology and religious studies that focuses on Augustine's rhetoric. And part of what I'm doing is trying to take that work into political theory, which itself has been very informed by a rhetorical turn. Um, there's been a lot of work since the 1960s or so that, that analyzes many political philosophers uh, in their rhetorical context um, and have focused on the way that thinkers like 
Plato or Hobbes or Machiavelli are using rhetoric uh, in certain ways to shape their audiences. And that sort of rhetorical attention hasn't yet been focused on Augustine. Um, there have been a few exceptions, as you mentioned, uh, Mary Keyes and Veronica Roberts Ogle and John von Hiking have talked about mm-hmm. Augustine's rhetoric. And what I'm trying to do is really lift up that in this book and show the ways in which it really does disrupt common interpretations of Augustine's pessimism. If we read Augustine rhetorically and see what he's trying to do in his rhetoric, not just what he's trying to say, I think we see a much more nuanced uh, account of how he's talking about the world's evils and the world's goods and how he's trying to train his audiences both to recognize the evils, to avoid the vice of presumption, but also recognize the goods that are available to them to avoid despair. And I think that sort of movement sort of through presumption and despair toward virtuous hope is a really unique way that he tries to cultivate that disposition in his audiences. And I think that's a really important part of Augustine's thought that is neglected if we only focus on his statements as abstract expressions of truth and don't attend to the way that rhetorical devices are sort of shaping his his approach. Right. So you're saying, just to get you clear, not looking at every individual statement or perhaps a few chosen individual statements and taking those as right, analytic philosophy, very clear truth claims or statements of his own personal beliefs, but looking at the work as a whole and how he is moving his reader, persuading his reader, drawing his reader maybe into <clears throat> realism and pessimism and back out or creating tensions and paradoxes. So that the work as a whole might have a very different look than particular passages. Is that sort of what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, there's one great passage I can illuminate as an example here, and it's from book 22 of the City of God, where he describes uh, the many different evils that affect uh, human and social affairs, and then describes uh, this world as like a hell on earth. And many political theorists have seen that phrase, hell on earth, um, and his extensive account of evils, and taken that phrase to be really indicative of this pessimism about the world. Um, but they often ignore the fact that in the very next chapter of The City of God, book 22, chapter 24, Augustine offers a very long litany of earthly goods, uh, going so far as even to praise the philosophers and heretics, he says, for displaying great ingenuity, even if they are, as he, he thinks, incorrect in their diagnoses. And so he's really thinking about the ways in which these um, parts come together, and I think that really focuses on an ancient device called antitheses or contrasts that Cicero and Quintilian lift up as a very important part of Roman rhetoric. But putting two things that are opposite side by side, you make one um, more vivid in its goodness because the opposite is so clearly in contrast. And so I think Augustine's actually using that ancient rhetorical device, which he talks about in Book 11, Chapter 18 of City of God as being a really elegant and important expression of rhetoric that even God uses, he says, in adorning the the world with uh, with goodness. And so I think if you understand Augustine in that context, using antitheses in this chapter, you see a much more complex view than if you just take one phrase out of context and ignore the way it's part of a larger argument and a larger uh, approach. I'll ask you, before I get into the, the nitty-gritty of the book, you have a phrase at the beginning that just caught me. You mentioned that we've had an Augustinian moment in theology but you hope to see a Augustinian moment in political theory. And so just what would that look like? What would be central in having an Augustinian moment come to political theory? And maybe what do you think would be central to an Augustinian moment in the rest of your work as 
looking at virtue and leadership and ethics? It's a great question, Joshua. I think, you know, we see in 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 theology and religious studies a real attention to Augustine's works and uh, not only um, trying to describe them historically and understanding them in his own context, but also taking those ideas and applying them um, in our contemporary moment. And I think that work hasn't yet really begun to happen in political theory. There have been recent signs that it's becoming more prominent. Uh, you mentioned books already by Mary Keyes and Veronica Roberts Ogle. There have been a few edited collections in the last few years that have really tried to focus on Augustine's political thought and several conferences um, that have done that as well. So I think there's a beginning to be a moment in political theory where people are taking Augustine uh, seriously in ways that help to illuminate his own work, but also to think about ways that it might shape our context. Um, I think Augustine is very complicated. There are things in his own context that are also quite challenging for us and things we might want to resist. Um, his views on slavery, for example, or his views about women in certain places. So it's not to sort of in, embrace Augustine's thought holistically as being relevant for our time, but really trying to understand how is his thought informed our thinking uh, as inheritors of his ideas, given that he really has shaped not only Catholic theology and philosophy from Aquinas, but also Protestant theology. And Martin Luther and John Calvin were both uh, Augustinians uh, who really cited his authority throughout their works. And many contemporary theorists and theologians have also drawn on Augustine's authority and ideas to inform their own. So how has his influence affected us? If we can be alert to that, that's really helpful. And what from his thought might be helpful for us as we engage it now? So which ideas might be valuable for us? How might thinking with Augustine uh, help us imagine new concepts such as hope or love differently? And how might a real attention to the dangers and limits of politics help us be aware of its possible corruptions while also resisting despair about reforming it? So I think there are ways Augustine can help us think about these concepts um, in our in our own time that can be valuable, even as we contextualize this thought and even perhaps resist certain ideas that we find uh, sort of horrendous or problematic. Absolutely. Well said. Let's get to the book. I've got um, one big question. The subtitle of this book is Augustine's Political Thought. Why in the world do we need another book on Augustine's political thought? Um, well, this is all done. research, so you know as well as I do. Um, how large that library is. What do you bring to the table and what really, um, yeah, to not put it rudely, what justifies another huge work on Augustine's political thought? Well, it's a great question, and there is a lot written about Augustine's political thought. I think um, my hope in, in this book is to do several things that might make it different. Uh, one, it's really to blend and integrate insights from multiple disciplines into one account that, that might also help to sort of expand how we understand his thought. Um, second is to really draw on text beyond the city of God, um, especially sermons and letters, which haven't really been taken up, uh, at least in political theory, yeah. very robustly yet in understanding Augustine's thought. It's also to show the ways in which attention to those texts and those other disciplines might illuminate concepts like hope that haven't yet been considered seriously as an Augustinian resource. And I think hope, especially given that Augustine's often seen as a great pessimist about politics, is important. Um, and many political theorists don't see Augustine as a source of hope. And so I, I thought that could be a very helpful way to re sort of examine and recover his thought in a more accurate way. But also, I think there are things that that reading of Augustine makes available to us for our contemporary moment. And I think his idea of hope as a virtue 
that avoids both presumption and despair uh, is very relevant. And to my knowledge, there's not been a book yet written about Augustine's virtue of hope. There's a lot written about Augustine's virtue of love and his account of faith, but not one, at least in English, on hope as a virtue. And so my real aim was to really recover that more nuanced account of hope show how it connects to his theology, his view of rhetoric, and his view of politics. And in that, in that process, show how political thought attuned to the virtue of hope might offer a different lens on Augustine that we realized before. So that's the, really the aim of the book, and I hope that um, the fruits of it might, might make it worth another account of Augustine's political thought. But I really do welcome engagement from critics and others about how that might shape their interpretations and what it might offer us that um, other accounts might not. Well, I do think it's worth it. I do think it is a a worthwhile project, especially because even if you want to disagree with it, it is a great critique of perhaps the mainstream readings of Augustine, and at least will force people to wrestle with these paradoxes of whether it's rhetoric or virtue or hope or Augustine's own life contributing. I don't think it'll be a very easy book to ignore as political theory continues to wrestle with Augustine. And it's also just well-written, (laughs) well-researched. I kind of, I was reading... uh, through it a couple days ago and i just thought i wish i had it's it's toward the end but there's one chapter it's just here's what this person says and this person says and i was like this is a lit review that would have taken me a year to do and pretty much did to read through all these different books on Augustine <laughs> and, uh, and politics but I, I think it'll be fruitful regardless of whether people agree with it to say oh yeah augustine's hopeful i think it is fruitful to bring it into conversation so tell me about hope why hope other than there's a gap in the literature. Hope is very, it's certainly central, but you start with the Enchiridion and it gets, what, a couple sentences. Why hope and why do you find so much hope in Augustine's politics? Yeah, you know, I think hope is often, um, as some interpreters say, an elusive virtue in Augustine's thought. Um, but I'm really struck by the ways that even the Confessions uses the language of hope throughout it very centrally. Uh, Ed Brooks from Oxford identifies 68 uses of that term or its derivative in Latin in the Confessions. And he often talks about his journey as being from despair to presumption to hope uh, throughout Mm -hmm. the Confessions. I think his life is really shaped in his own self-conception even by hope being a crucial virtue for him. And in in Caridian, which is often seen as as his most kind of systematic view of hope, uh, where he ties it to the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's also very uh, thin. It's only kind of two two or three paragraphs there, uh, one small section of that book, uh, which mostly focuses on the virtue of faith. And what I argue in, in the book is that Gus understands for his audience, in this case, uh, Laurentius, uh, that if if he wants to actually get to hope and love, there needs to be a foundation in faith first. And so I think Augustine's approach there is really pedagogical. He knows that for hope to find a grounding, it must be grounded in faith. So he spends a lot of time thinking about faith in that context, and he also wants to write an Enchiridion, which in Greek means handbook, uh, and he talks about the ways that that he, you hold it in your hand. And so it can't be too big a book uh, to be a handbook in that ancient sense. And so I think he's thinking about the ways that his genre and his sort of pedagogical purposes sort of inform his, his approach to this particular uh, concept. And so I think in that context, tying hope as he does to the Lord's Prayer there means that he's able to give Laurentius and other readers a short formula that helps them uh, understand how hopes can be ordered both to eternal and to temporal goods, and also a practice that they can repeat in their own lives in ways that help them order their hopes properly. Many of Augustine's readers would not have been 
um, able to read in his own context. Only about five or ten percent of his audience might be able to read books. And so he knew that many people would only hear these books or hear certain expressions, for example, in church. And so you might hear the Lord's Prayer uh, in a Sunday worship service, and that might prompt you, he thinks, to consider your own hopes and how they might be ordered. So having that as a practice, not just as a as an expression of hope, is really crucial for his own view of what hope is as a virtue. So I do think if we recognize Augustine's own rhetorical context, the genre, the aims, and the constraints of it, then we might uh, see his view of hope much differently. So I do think if you attend to those aspects of Augustine's thought throughout his writings, um, hope becomes much more prominent than it might on um, a cursory reading. Great. Well, let's back up. What is hope? What are hopes? What does it mean to hope? In that that last response, you use the word a lot, and it seems in a lot of different ways. In your exploration of Augustine, what do you find hope to be? What are we yeah, talking about? It's a great question. I think hope, as Augustine understands it, is is a desire or love, a type of love uh, for a good. Uh, and that good is a future good, um, which makes hope, he says, different from faith, which can be about past, present, or future. Um, and it's a good that is possible but not yet possessed or seen. So we hope for what is unseen. If we um, saw what we hoped for, we wouldn't hope for it. We would actually love it or be joined to it some way. So hope is for goods that are future, possible, but not yet possessed. Um, and he recognized that hope can be an affection or an emotion. We hope for things all the time um, that might be good or bad. So we need a virtue, he thinks, a kind of quality of our character, our soul, that helps us hope in the right ways, the right times, in ways that for him are ordered toward uh, love of God. And so for him, he thinks about hope as a virtue that directs us toward, ultimately, um, the the most expansive common good, which he sees as God, but he also recognizes that we have hope for temporal goods as well. We we hope for friendship and wisdom and love and other goods that we find important for our own journey in this life. And so he thinks that we can hope for those goods as long as we don't um, sort of disorder them and hope for them in ways that might violate or not be compatible with love of God. And often he identifies the vices that then oppose hope as forms of disorder and identifies two. One is presumption or um, perverse hope, where we hope too much for certain temporal goods or too much in others to help us achieve them or ourselves without hoping um, in God or in ways that might be aligned with love and hope for God. Um, that's one form of, of vice and disorder. A second form is the lack of hope, which is despair. When we uh, think that certain goods are, are actually good, but think they're not possible to achieve or attain, so we give up. And he thinks that both presumption and despair um, can really undermine virtuous hope and cause us to um, give up on pursuing the good. If we presume it's already possible, we already have it, we won't pursue it. And if we despair of achieving it, we also won't work or change to make um, that possible. And so I think those those two vices really do challenge virtuous hope. And I see Augustine throughout his work really helping his readers identify temptations toward both presumption and despair and to resist them. And so uh, my own reading of Augustine is that he really does offer a virtue of hope that helps us recognize the value of hoping for both eternal and temporal goods and therefore helps us resist the vices of presumption and despair. Yeah, give me a little bit more on that distinction of hoping in temporal goods, hoping in eternal goods. You compare it at times to an order of love, how we love temporal things in certain ways and love eternal things. 
How do you find that distinction of temporal hopes? I know that becomes important for developing the rest of the political theory. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I read his view of temporal and eternal uh, goods and hopes as being a, an expression of his view of proximate and ultimate goods. Um, often he uses the, the language of use and enjoyment to identify things we might hope for, that we ought to use certain temporal goods to enjoy God, for example. And many um, interpreters, including several in political theory, from Hannah Arendt to Martha Nussbaum and even Reinhold Niebuhr, use that idea and see it as a very instrumental idea of ends and means, that we use human beings or the worldly goods as means of loving God or hoping for God. And I think Augustine's own view is much more complex and resists that more modern interpretation. Uh, the Latin words that he uses don't necessarily mean um, um, what many interpreters think they mean, and they often are uh, constructed to talk about um, something as being a, a part of a larger whole. So to use something is to see it as an as kind of a, a part of um, achieving a larger whole. And I think the language of parts and wholes or approximate and ultimate objects um, help to capture his thought in ways that show more continuity between temporal and eternal goods than an ends and means approach might allow. So I think, I think for Augustine, uh, loving temporal goods in ways that are ordered toward eternal goods and to God Hoping for temporal goods in ways that are ordered to hope for God uh, can be part of that ultimate hope, not simply opposed to it or separate from it. So I think understanding the parts and wholes language offers a more um, capacious, nuanced, and I think continuous account of hope and love than many standard readings sort of, sort of assume. Great. What are some temporal goods that you see Augustine hoping for or that you'd hope this book encourages us to hope for? And one of the main ones is civic peace. He talks a lot about the uh, city of God um, as an expression of eternal peace, but he also recognizes the ways in which the commonwealths, our communities, need civic peace to uh, sustain a common life together. And he has a very robust view of civic peace. It includes not only the absence of violence, but also, he says, uh, bodily health and soundness, our social communities as well as those things that might preserve this civic peace, such as drinkable water, breathable air, and all things might, we might need to heal and adorn the body. And so it's a very capacious view of what peace entails. And I think that's one way in which we can kind of find common good around um, an object like peace that might bring us together across differences. So how might we seek uh, civic peace uh, amidst a world of conflict, uh, amidst our deep divisions, and what can Augustine teach us about that? I think it's a very important question, and I think Augustine's own focus on civic peace as a common good, approximate good, that members of both the earthly and heavenly cities can share is a very important um, contribution to that conversation. Great. I know we spoke earlier about rhetoric, but tell me a little bit about how you see rhetoric working in this and that full you call it into hell and out again. How is that working in Augustine and how is that revealing a longing for hope that you see? So I, Augustine's really using rhetoric pedagogically, I think, to shape his readers' uh, loves and desires. So he really sees it not just as a way to manipulate audiences we might think about rhetoric today, but instead as a way to shape them and persuade mm -hmm. them. And he recognizes that we no one need instruction about what to do. We also need encouragement uh, that really helps us do things that we know to be good. He recognizes that one of our key weaknesses is not only 
um, ignorance, but uh, sort of weakness of will. And so we might know what is good, but lack the encouragement to actually pursue it. And um, Cicero had a very robust idea that you need to um, use different styles of rhetoric to both instruct and encourage audiences. And Augustine takes this idea and applies it to his own writing. So he thinks that the more restrained style is more the analytical style, where you analyze ideas, and the aim is really to instruct or to teach people what things are or how reality might be. But there's a, another style called the grand style that's more um, emotionally laden and more um, expansive and really aiming to shape the emotions of audiences in ways that encourage them to pursue the goods that are being described. So it's a much more emotionally rich and motivating kind of discourse. And there's a mixed style, which is more ornamental, which really tries to convey beauty in its approach. And by conveying beauty and delight, tries to attract attention to the arguments that are being made. And so Augustine, I think, really applies these different styles in different ways. And we can't understand his thought if we're only reading him as a philosopher uh, in the restrained style, analyzing arguments. He's also using the grand style to encourage readers to pursue the city of God and to order their hopes and loves properly. And the mixed style to really engage their attention and by engaging their attention, draw them into the conversation in ways that help them be motivated properly. So I think attending to Augustine's styles and how he uses those styles from Cicero rhetorically, uh, he makes this very clear in, in book four of On Christian Teaching, I think he helps us understand Augustine's own approach and how he's trying to use different rhetorical devices to shape his readers and their hopes. Well put. You bring in Philosophy as a Way of Life, which is a book that I have been sort of playing with in the back of my mind, but have not connected to Augustine and rhetoric. I have sort of tucked it over in my ethics research. What made you want to bring those together to look at ancient philosophy and virtue and Augustine and political theory? You know, I think Augustine really is drawing on a tradition of philosophy as a way of life, that it's really about shaping people's lives. They're their character, not just their ideas or their minds. And so I think to understand him in his own context, it requires understanding how he's thinking about philosophy. And I think many of Augustine's own sort of influences in philosophy, from Cicero to um, sort of Plotinus and the Platonist, are engaging this idea of philosophy as a way of life in a direct, very direct way. So I think Augustine himself is really um, not only a philosopher, but a pastor primarily, and he sees his role as being a pastor. There's a great line he has from a letter from Jerome that says, Jerome, you, you really are a scholar. I'm more of a pastor. I don't have time to deal with these complexities. I need to actually pastor to my congregation. So I think Augustine's real aim is thinking about the ways that his work, be it a letter, a sermon, or a treatise, might actually shape the character and the loves of his audiences. So I think in that context, if we're trying to understand Augustine's thought um, in his own time in ways that he would understand it, understanding philosophy as a way of life, I think, is crucial to that move. And many people have attended to philosophy as a way of life without focusing on Augustine, per se. They focused on other uh, thinkers in ways that might um, mention Augustine, but don't apply that more extensively. So my hope in this book is really to apply that um, approach more extensively to Augustine. Absolutely. I think that's a great move and one I would hope to see developed more. I don't know if it's something you have hopes to look at, but you talk about, you know, perhaps having an Augustinian moment in political theory. I would love to have an Augustinian moment in philosophical ethics. There's been 
a revival of virtue with Anscombe through to contemporary stuff, but I feel like a lot of those read Augustine through Thomas or through analytic philosophy rather than actually getting into Augustine and looking at, yeah, that sort of ancient rhetoric of a way of life, hoping to evoke passions and affections. And so there's much in philosophical ethics that's like, yeah, here's virtue ethics, and if you know it better and do it better, it'll work. And I would love to see more of an Augustinian moment of saying, here's a virtuous life, and let's look at how to draw into that or find love and hope in things that pull us toward virtue rather than just analyzing them. I don't know if you're doing anything like that out Wake Forest, but if you've got nothing going on, just write that book for me. That'd be helpful. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that book is is um, worth writing, and I think there's a lot that Augustine contribute to philosophical discourse analysis. In my own book, I really try to think about the ways in which Augustine not only might inform ethics and political philosophy, but also how his work on sort of faith might also align with certain moves and recent epistemology and philosophy of religion. I think there are a lot of things that Augustine says about how we give and exchange reasons for our faith that do align with more relational accounts of faith in contemporary epistemology, for example, and the ways in which Augustine might be a resource, I think, is yet to be discovered. So I think there could be ways in which even in those fields, uh, Augustine might make contributions to that to that work. Um, as for my own work, I'm really focused right now on different accounts of virtue and character and what research in philosophy, psychology, education, uh, and other fields might teach us about those those ideas. And I do think Augustine's a resource for that. I also think that we can learn a lot from various other resources uh, around our tradition. So I'm really trying to draw very widely on different accounts of virtue um, to help us understand different ways under, uh, of, of living out a good life and how those accounts might help point us toward different virtues in different ways. And I think Augustine, for example, being focused as he is on humility, uh, offers a very interesting account of humility that might not be present in uh, the same extent in other accounts. So what can we learn from different accounts of virtue and how different thinkers help us recognize um, human nature and both its possibilities and its limits? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a couple minutes left. Let's get to the heart of this. Your part three, the politics of hope. You put forward a few what would traditionally be crazy ideas that we can have hope for temporal goods, that we can have hope for actual virtue, for virtue among the pagans, as we would say. Tell me, you have a whole book about hope. Do you think the hope for the Commonwealth is in vain? Are we being unrealistic? Or perhaps why should we not be, as I would say, realist when it comes to hoping for temporal goods? Mm. Yeah, I think we should be realist. Um, but I think we have to be realist about both... Um, possibility of evil and the possibility of goodness. And I think mm. to be realist, focus only, only on the realities of evil and not on the realities of, of goodness or possibility. So I do think Augustine helps us attend to both of those things. Um, I think we have many reasons in our current moment to despair about politics. Um, we see conflict, we see division, we see injustice, we see domination, we see various forms of social and political evil, we might say, that we need to resist. And if we focus only on those um, evils, we might be tempted rightly toward despair about politics and therefore give up on actually affecting it. But if we actually want to resist those uh, evils and help bring about more justice and peace and um, a sense of the common good, we have to, do, to work for those goods. And I think we need the virtue of hope to motivate us to pursue those goods, especially in the face of difficulties. Um, if we presume those goods are easily achieved um, or that, that we can achieve them on our own, we will be disappointed and our hopes will be dashed. So we need a virtue that helps us be motivated in the face of difficulty to achieve those goods without either 
um, being tempted by presumption or despair. And so I do think the virtue of hope is especially important for us right now. And then Augustine gives us the vocabulary to identify it and in our own lives to, to cultivate it. So I do think in that way, I think we have to have hope for our common good. If we despair of it, I think we only entrench the problems that we currently see. So if we do think that see these as real issues we have to address, I think the virtue of hope gives the motivation we need to address them in ways that are both realistic, um, but also open to new possibility. Good. So perhaps not, well, certainly not idealism that right. all these temporal goods will be attained, but yeah, perhaps that despite their, their lack of attainment, we persist to hope. There's a real danger, I think, in our current discourse to equate hope with optimism and think that if we're optimistic, that that's the same as hope. And I think Augustine really challenging uh, that view. In fact, optimism wasn't a term that was common in ancient Rome. Uh, it's really a term that really gained its purchase in the 18th century with Voltaire and Leibniz. And so we often attribute Augustine, uh, often assume Augustine has an optimism or pessimism in certain ways. But that wasn't really a concept he was using in his own work. And so I think if we sort of go back to the more uh, nuanced idea of hope uh, as a way between both presumption and despair, between certain kinds of optimism and certain kinds of pessimism, we get a more nuanced, sophisticated, and complex way of analyzing future possible goods and what's required to attain them uh, in this life. Yeah, excellent. How do you get around the pagan virtue problem that is so prevalent in Augustinian studies, this idea that virtue, especially among the pagans, among the Romans, is nothing but splendid vices, a, a sort of hiding place for our pride and self-sufficiency. How do you reconcile that critique with Augustine's vision for hope? You know, I think that is certainly part of Augustine's um, text, and if we find certain passages, we can see that argument being made throughout his works. But I think there is a more complex and more ambivalent argument that is more welcoming of, of certain virtues of non-Christians, what Augustine calls pagans, in ways that, that acknowledges their goodness. So I think recognizing the ways in which Augustine elevates certain Roman leaders um, as being exemplars of virtue, um, they may not be perfectly virtuous, he says, but they can have a genuine kind of virtue. And so what we argue in the book is that we can recognize um, genuine virtues even if they are imperfect. And I think Augustine does that in some of his more um, uh, nuanced moments when talking about Roman virtues. And he also talks about the ways in which others, um, be them pagans or those for other traditions, might also um, embody virtue if they have humility in their own life and don't claim too much for themselves. And so I think Augustine's really trying to say that we can't know God's own purposes. We can't know who is saved. We can't presume that we are without um, being humble about our own approach. And so I think he recognizes the ways in which um, God's work is often, he says, hidden. And we have to be careful not to claim too much about how God works and be alert to our own humility as we think about our pursuit of the good life. So I do think that if you recognize his focus on humility and its value in um, in sort of constraining our views of pride that might infect our pursuit of virtue, and that he recognizes that we need to also acknowledge our dependence on others and be grateful toward them, what Romans often call piety. If we have both humility and piety, which um, means we're not often thinking we can do it on our own, 
that could be a kind of imperfect virtue, he thinks, that can help us all uh, achieve the good life. And I think he recognizes that even Christians, those who claim to be most virtuous, also uh, are ridden by pride and mm-hmm. by sin and therefore ought to be careful about uh, even claiming their own virtue when it's not yet fully complete. So I think he's he's more, I think, humble and ambiguous about um, non-Christian virtue than often some of his most rhetorically excessive moments might suggest. And what I hope to do in the book is offer one way of interpreting Augustine in those moments that open, opens up a different way of reading him on the question of, of non-Christian or pagan virtue. No, that is helpful. And instead of contrasting pride, these false virtues, with Christian faith in ways that I feel like are, are typically done when they say, oh, unless you you know have everything directed to God and have belief, you have no virtue whatsoever. It perhaps uses humility and piety to temper that rather than just saying those who we know claim to be Christian are virtuous and everyone else is out. The tempering factor is humility and piety, whether they're imperfect virtues or not. That is helpful. I think that's right. In order to have hope and to avoid the danger of presumption and despair, we need both humility and piety. You know, humility to, to recognize that our presumption might not be accurate and go to chasten it, and also piety to both recognize that presumption might not be proper, but also to recognize the ways we've gotten assistance from others in the past. And if people help us in the past, they can help us again. And so that acknowledgement of their own contribution to our progress and existence, what he calls piety, can actually help us resist despair. And so I think for hope especially, those virtues are are crucial for Augustine's conception. Yes. And walk me through that last step you make to go from there's pagan virtue, there might not be Christian virtue because we have the same exact problems with pride and despair to more practical hopes for pluralism, for virtue in the world that we live in. Sort of what is the connection between, okay, here's a new take on Augustine. How does that connect to our own political theory and environment? Yeah, I think Augustine's vision of the commonwealth here is quite important and helpful. And he has a vision that a commonwealth is is organized um, by how people unite around common objects of love. And he recognizes that we might have different beliefs and values um, that are ordered toward ultimate objects of love, but we can unite around certain common objects of love, even if we have different religions and, and traditions. And so I think that vision of a commonwealth, where members of both earthly and heavenly cities, he says, as well as those from different traditions, can find agreement around peace and build civic friendships that help to seek peace and justice in the world um, is one way to think about pluralism that acknowledges that we come from different traditions, that we have our own ultimate aspirations, hopes, and loves, but that uh, even with those differences, we can actually find common ground without erasing those differences. I think it's really important. I think in our own current discourse, we want to either deny people's own formation and how they've been shaped by their own traditions and require kind of neutral public reason to build consensus or to have a more singular uh, uh, view of what virtue or, or good ought to be. And I think Gustin certainly has a certain view of what it ought to be, but he also acknowledges that we can find common goods uh, in spite of those differences. So I think that's a very important approach to politics. It is more pluralistic while recognizing that people do have traditions and beliefs and commitments that might be different. Uh, and it allows them to express those and keep those without necessarily um, having to, to check them at the door of the public square. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we'll leave the book there. I'm sure I will come back to it many times over the next couple of years, especially and hopefully long to the future. 
let me ask you, what are you working on now or next? Yes, well, you know, I am working a lot on how to educate virtue and character, and that's been my work at Wake Forest the last few years. I develop a program for leadership and character there with my team and also do research on uh, leadership and character. So I'm writing a book now on how to educate character, drawing on research and philosophy, education, psychology, and other fields to um, describe seven strategies that we found to be most effective for shaping character and to provide sort of an accessible account of those strategies, drawing on the research to help um, others, including faculty, staff, and others around the around the country, think about ways to understand virtue, but also to use strategies to apply it uh, and educate it very practically. And so it's really aimed to be a kind of a, uh, a philosophically informed book that really is aimed toward a practical application um, in colleges and universities as people want to pursue and therefore educate character. Wonderful. That sounds very interesting. I look forward to it. Thank you, Josh. I'm very grateful yeah. to be here. Of course, we've we've enjoyed it. The, the last question I'll ask is, do you have other books on Augustine that you would recommend reading, looking into, or even having someone on the podcast? You know, well, for those who are new to Augustine, I really think Peter Brown's biography is just magisterial, and it offers a kind of an account of Augustine's life that is really rich in its contextual detail, but also... Um, thoughtful in its own intellectual analysis. So I think that's a great place to start for those who want to know about Augustine. Uh, But I think more recently, I just finished reviewing and reading uh, Veronica Roberts Ogle's new book, Politics and the Earthly City and Augustine City of God, which I think offers a very thoughtful, close reading of the city of God and the ways that Augustine is drawing on Roman philosophy, history, and rhetoric to um, offer a a different account of the earthly city and also therefore encourage his readers to pursue the city of God. So I think it's a very thoughtful book and I'd encourage uh, readers who are interested in Augustine's uh, political thought to check out Veronica's book. I think it's a really terrific analysis of how the city of God is working to shape readers hopes and loves. I love that you recommended her book. You don't know this, but I came to your book and reached out to you a couple years ago on her behalf. I asked her, I was like, Hey, who else is doing stuff these days? And she said, Michael Lamb and Mary Keys are two that you need to get in touch with. Awesome. That's <laughs> so great. I love that you you returned the favor. Well, she's a great colleague. I think she's doing terrific work on, on Augustine, so I really yeah. recommend it very highly. Good. She's been very helpful to me just personally. We're hoping to talk to her in a couple of weeks for the podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy your research leave traveling all around. It's been great, Josh. Thanks so much for your, your engagement and your careful reading the book. I'm excited about uh, your own work and look forward to talking more about Augustine in the days to come. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Michael Lamb. If you like the show or want to find out more about his work, go buy his book. As always, there's a link in the description. Check out the other work he's doing at the Program for Leadership and Character at leadershipandcharacter.wfu.edu. As always, thanks for listening.